Hello, and welcome to Sobercast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting Sobercast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. Have a great day. Good evening, everyone. My name is Don, an alcoholic. You know, it, it is tough, really, when someone has had your a tape that you a pitch you gave, because I I don't uh, I don't have any particular canned message, and when someone knows your talk better than you do, <laughs> and Harland uh, he's been quite close with me for the last day and a half. I think I know more about Harlan now than I ever wanted to know about any man. (laughs) I trust that all of you have made all of the other meetings because they were there was enough spirituality and enough insight into the twelve steps and the wonders of our program to last anyone until the next convention, I'm sure. And in fact I'm right up to here with spirituality, I'll tell you that. And you're, you're not gonna get any more of it tonight. I uh, No, I, I'm I'm just jesting, of course the the talks have been excellent. They really have. I People made fun of the ex- old granddad expression that seems to be humorous to those who are not old granddads. <laughs> I, uh, I listened with delight to young Jan, who kept talking about her problems with fear and sexual problems <laughs> last night. I... She kept always referring to her sexual problems, and I could tell her in all candor that when you've been around as long as I have, they won't come up quite as frequently. I, I'm, I don't mean to put people... That, that was a beautiful talk. And that, that is a big problem, really. That Learning to do it sober is a... You know, is a... I think back. I think back. Most of us began drinking and uh, and discovering the differences back about the same time. We kind of get them interblended, you know. That 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 sex is a terrifying damn thing. I I can remember how frightened I was the first time when I was alone. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, 
And Doyle was galling on his folk this morning. I mean, there was an inspirational talk. Is that in the loudspeaker? Is it me? Actually, that's an improvement for both of us because at my age, you hate to see anything shaped like that that droops. Commenting on the Al-Anon speaker, Doyle, I believe his name was, he he gave a very inspirational talk about how Al-Anon had, you know, as a result of Al-Anon and AA, he had not only gotten his wife sober, but he'd gotten rid of her. And I thought that, uh, that was something we can all strive for there. A... And then they, oh, they had, oh, I forgot, they, Harlan, yeah, they had a group of people at that talking chairs last night. Now, that was a hand to draw to, I'll tell you. <laughs> Here, five or six people who had all come into office as a result of not getting enough votes. You know, as, a, <laughs> as near as I could tell, their higher power was a hat. <laughs> Is there anyone else I haven't defended? <laughs> oh, Helen. I, I would hate to forget Helen. Good Lord. That uh, that was inspiration. She talked about going to the baths and getting a massage. Now, see, I come from the Hollywood area. <laughs> Judges do not go in baths around Hollywood to get massages. I'll tell you that. But that was an excellent talk. I, I learned quite a few things. She talked about Kathmandu. You know, the meetings that had been formed in Kathmandu, Nepal, and I'd always been interested in that. Uh, I, sometimes you wonder where your money goes to at central office. And, uh, but actually, I hope most of you did hear it because a wonderful talk, but that Kathmandu story was actually, was actually so typical of AA because they form a group in this unheard of place with people of different religious and ethnic backgrounds, but they still are exactly like AA after whatever period it took to get the first meeting formed. Within no time at all, it had split and they got two meetings. <laughs> no more members, just a fight. <laughs> That's how AA has grown. Uh, start my own damn meeting and then I can speak every night. I was also talking, we took a ride around through some of the poorer parts of town. Uh, Harlan was showing us around. And, and we were talking about the things they do at central office. And <laughs> the thing came up, I, uh, as you can tell, by the way, I have no planned talk. You don't have to, no, nobody needs to take notes. But we were, we were talking in the car about how 
I was writing a decision a while back, and I'd wanted to make a particular point, and I recalled that quote that's in the end of our book, the idea that there is one sure guarantee, you know, an, an impairment and a block against all learning, one way to guarantee everlasting ignorance, condemnation prior to investigation or something like that. And I wanted to use that in this decision I was writing. Well, when you're writing a decision, you have to put down where the site comes from. And so I got out my book and I took a look and it said Herbert Spencer. And I thought, that's strange that he would say that. I would have thought it was a Disraeli or one of the British parliamentarians. I wouldn't have thought Herbert Spencer said it. So I called down the Los Angeles Library and I said, I'm Judge Gates, I'm writing a decision. I want to find out where this quote from Herbert Spencer comes from. What, what work did it come from? And they looked at it for, oh, a week or so, and they finally called back and said, we can't find it. We've gone through his works. We have there's. It sounds familiar, but we can't find it in anything he ever said. And so I wrote back to Central Office and asked them, where did this quote from Herbert Spencer come from? Where did you get this? And they wrote back and said, we don't know. It, it seemed that, as they explained it to me, in the very first AA book, there was a set of stories. And one of the fellows whose story was in the first edition... He had made that quote, and I mean, they didn't censor it, they didn't ask him to check it, but he and his story, as it appeared in the book, was the quote about the one way to ensure everlasting ignorance is condemnation prior to investigation, and he described it to Herbert Spencer. Nobody ever checked that. Herbert Spencer never said that. Okay. <laughs> or maybe, maybe it was his friend, Herbie Spencer, down at the Manhattan Bar on Fifth Avenue. You know? <laughs> That's what Herbie Spencer said. Uh, and that basically is how AA works. <laughs> I used to do, uh, you know, it's true, we, we steal so constantly from each other, we, it's impossible to tell what's original with us. It, you give credit to the person you heard it from three times, and then it's yours, uh, is the general rule. We also talked about nervousness, how becoming frightened when you're asked to speak. And I was telling them that I do not become frightened anymore when I have to speak. I did it one time, but that was when I thought I had a message. <laughs> I really, I was listening to a tape of a pitch I made just before my last slip. And, and God was it profound. I mean, the subtle insights I had into Freudian and Jungian philosophy. I traced the history of AA via the Oxford movement. I mean, it was, there was something there for everyone. Uh, and I, nowadays, I know that uh, that isn't the case. I don't have to carry that sort of a message. No one has ever gotten drunk as a result of anything said from the podium, I doubt we've gotten sober either. But really, what there's some magic that comes into an AA room, and the speaker's primary function is to hold the audience's attention for the requisite period, so that perhaps they will come back that the magic may occur for them. And knowing that makes it very simple. I just wave my arms, open my fly, or whatever is necessary. <laughs> 
to keep people engaged for that period of time. And in all candor, I really could give a whole sum and substance of my knowledge in a very few seconds because today it seems to me that alcoholism is without question the simplest disorder ever to have afflicted mankind, the most easily recognizable and treatable. You know, its very name gives you a marked clue as to what the problem is. <laughs> no, uh, seriously, if you were not handicapped with a degree in psychology, the, <laughs> the chances are rather excellent that if somebody asked you what causes alcoholism, you'd come up with the right answer. Alcohol? Right. And that's it. Our book tells us that the one thing alcoholics have in common, one with the other, is the phenomenon of craving that results from taking the first drink. Other than that, nothing that we do not share with the non-alcoholic world. No, it's not our emotions. Non-alcoholics have rather weird and strange emotions, too. There have been no new emotions invented in the last ten millennia. I mean, if you wake up in the middle of the night feeling uncertain, anxious, that's not because you're alcoholic, it's because you're human. And I'm sure the Caesars and the Pharaohs awoke in the middle of the night, you know, and thought, what am I doing with this stupid laurel wreath? You know, I'm no Caesar. <laughs> Just an Italian kid trying to get by him. <laughs> you know, today it's... Today it is almost customary because we have been... See, A has been in existence so long that it's changed a great deal. Because, you know, the simplicity of the darn thing. Our book says that there are psychotics. And one in ten of them are alcoholic. I mean, why should a psychotic get off any easier than the rest of us? <laughs> there are sociopaths, psychopathic inferiors. One in ten are alcoholic. There are neurotics in every hue on the emotional spectrum. One in ten are alcoholics. And then there are people who are normal in every respect, the book says, except the effect alcohol has on them. I've never met any of them, but... <laughs> but I sobered up in Southern California, and you wouldn't be apt to find one there. I always sort of believe they probably are out around Akron, most of them. But it is true, you do not have to be mentally ill to qualify to have membership in this program. You don't have to be crazy. There's no handicap if you are. In fact, if you are and stay sober, the chances are very good you're going to become a leader. <laughs> okay. But the, the book says there are those, too, who suffer from grave emotional and mental disorders. Now, if that is used in the way ordinary English usage would have it, that means the vast majority do not suffer from grave emotional and mental disorders. There are those who do, but most of them don't. And there, for each of us in here, there's nine just about like us out there who do not have the phenomenon of craving. Alcoholism is... A, Utterly universal thing. Doesn't care anything about race, creed, color, 
financial background, education, roughly one in ten of anybody who drinks has it. We haven't had ten guys walk on the face of the moon yet. Two of them are already in AA. I don't think there's been a... Well, we haven't, it hasn't shown up in the present one, but there's hardly been a White House here recently that hasn't had at least one qualified member in it. In fact, I was speaking at the Long Beach Hospital one time, and I looked down on the front row, and there was Billy. <laughs> and, you know, and it, it flashed through my mind. I thought, sometimes it's tough to make amends, but imagine what it would be like to have to go and say... To your brother, I'm sorry I cost you the presidency. <laughs> he didn't, of course, but he didn't help. Uh, yeah, but there really is nothing that unusual about us. You know, in fact, if there's anything worse than the fact that we tend now to talk about our illness, or at least some speakers do, they get up and flagellate themselves with their own inadequacies to... There isn't a shred of flesh on their back by the time they're done. And uh, I enjoy it, and they know themselves better than I do, but but the implication of it sometimes is that the world outside, the non-alcoholic world, that we refer to as normal, I've heard them referred to as normsies even, Uh, a quaintness that makes you want to vomit up your sleeve, but, but if by normal one means in the statistic majority, then that's an apt use of the phrase. But if by normal, one means people who have well-adjusted lives, who have themselves and their goals put together, who lead contented and secure existences. Anyone who believes that the non-alcoholic world is well-adjusted has not looked at a television set, read a newspaper, or glanced outside in a long time. The non-alcoholic world is stark, raven, mad. The thing is, they never have to change. They go through their entire lives filled with the dubious luxuries, as our book calls it, of resentment and self-pity. Downtown where I work, I watch them walking around, you know, their knuckles white and their jaws tense. Mm-hmm. They're looking out for number one. They're going to get even going to get that bitch on the stand and make her admit she's an unfit mother right in front of the children. Ah! I mean, they're nuts. And they never have to change. Why should they change? All they get, ulcers, lockjaw, maybe. You don't get arrested for driving while pissed off. never heard of anyone being booked for being a common mope, or, or whining and disorderly. You get 
to get into trouble through getting drunk. Now, we don't stop doing the things that are ruining their lives because we want to live pleasant lives. We do it because if we don't, we're going to get taken drunk. They don't have to. And that's why it's so dangerous to think the world is in control of the non-alcoholics. You know, it's a frightening thing. You see, we're alcoholics, even in our drinking day, we're not menaces. Oh, I mean, we bloody the highways and break the hearts of everybody we come in contact with. But we're no danger to Western civilization. For God's sakes, we're not that well enough organized. Uh, <laughs> really, think about it out there. The, the non-alcohol. They're, they're crazy. How did you like the Falkland Islands dispute? Two nations fighting over a frozen rock, and as far as we know, both sides were sober. <laughs> How does Lebanon and Beirut grab you as an example of three great religions getting together to solve a problem? Boom, boom, kill, kill. <laughs> No, actually, Alcoholics Anonymous is a little series of islands of sanity in an otherwise lunatic sea, I think. <laughs> it, uh... and, and not, as I say, because we don't have the same symptoms they do. It's just we have to do something about it. They don't. And there's nothing mysterious about our disease. As I say, it's called phenomenon of craving that comes from taking the first drink. It's the only thing that distinguishes us. What? But the thing, even that wouldn't be a problem, of course, if we didn't take the first drink. I've met people who are just physically alcoholic. They don't need AA. They don't drink. I remember working on the railroads one time, and uh, on the railroad they have a rule called Rule G, I think it is. If you're caught drunk on the job, you're subject to be immediately being fired or something. And this was a holiday, so naturally I had a bottle with me. And I offered a co-worker a drink, and he said, no, thank you. And I thought, uh-oh, company think. <laughs> I said, what's the matter, fellow? Why won't you drink with me? And he said, oh, I haven't anything against it. He said, but I, I tried it when I was younger, and Christ, I, I was like an Indian. I didn't know what the hell I was going to do. Sometimes I just did the goddamnedest thing. <laughs> and I said, listen, fellow, I ask you a fair question. I'd like a fair answer. That happens to me all the time. Now... Somebody keeps us driving us back to try it again. <laughs> and the book tells us exactly what that is, too. It doesn't say anything about insanity in the legal or medical sense. It has the other thing we have, the secondary part that makes us need AA, is the obsession. The great obsession of the abnormal drinker is somehow, someday, is going to control and enjoy it. The persistence of this illusion is astonishing. So our book is very simple. It tells us exactly what the problem is and exactly what we have to do about it. And, you know, and yet, even, I, I think about that sometimes, because even in a group like this, where they gather together for convention, there are still people actually in this room, I'll bet, who are thinking, am I really an alcoholic? As if their opinion meant a crap. <laughs> in 
other words, what difference does it make what you think about a physical disease? Would a diabetic's opinion on the subject have any relevancy whatsoever? And it's so easy to determine if you are an alcoholic. If, if there is anybody here tonight, let, let's just say, who's wondering if they're an alcoholic. It's such a simple test. Just ask yourself this one question and answer it honestly. Just ask this. Am I now, or have I ever been in attendance at an AA meeting? That's your answer. <laughs> Non-alcoholics don't come to AA. What the hell would they come to AA for? I mean, that would, that would be like the proverbial virgin going in for a rabbit test. I, If you're here, non-alcoholics don't ask themselves that question. Anybody who asks that question is. If you're here, you're an alcoholic. The only decision left is, are you going to die chewing your tongue, or are you going to die of a relatively contented and happy life? And that really is a decision that probably doesn't mean much to anybody but you, <laughs> by and large. I've already told you more than I know about alcoholism, and, you know, the cure is simple. You simply control the movement of your elbow. Now, people will, they'll say, how do you really stop drinking, as if there was some magic to it? You know, as if some fairy was going to touch you with a wand. That happens down in Hollywood occasionally, but... does no harm, or rather pleasant, actually, but uh, <laughs> it won't stop you drinking. You know, or as if uh, some evangelist was going to lay hands and say, heal, you know, out thou demon rum. Uh, it doesn't happen that way. All you do is just control the movement of your elbow. That'll give you eternal sobriety. If you can do that when you want, and insist. Now, maybe some are so far gone that their arm spastic, like reaches out and hurls things toward their back. <laughs> but assume you can fend it off, eternal sobriety is yours. The only thing is that with that obsession, you won't do it because you won't want to stay sober. I mean, that's why non-alcoholics, you know, alcoholics, to my, in my opinion, have greater willpower than any group I know. I mean, you talk about tenacity. The reason non-alcoholics think we don't have willpower is they think we want to stay sober. <laughs> and the solution to this obsession is really just as clear and self-evident as is the disease itself. At our meetings out there, I don't know whether it's done at every meeting here, but out there they read a, like a Chinese water torture at every meeting, a portion of our book subtly captioned how it works. Now, if you're an intellectual, you'll miss that for quite a while. <laughs> you 
anything that clearly labeled couldn't possibly be very meaningful. If they would call it the psychodynamics of permanent aridity or something, yeah, you know. But, uh, but I went around, I know, for some time wondering how it works. <laughs> well, I don't mean I ask out loud because I was far too sophisticated for that, but uh, I wondered how it worked. Because in most AA meetings, the guy gets up or a gal and tells a story about themselves that if they had an ounce of pride, they wouldn't confess to their mother. <laughs> From their own lips come the admission they're liars, drunkards, thieves, profligates, and ne'er-do-wells. And, on, and you sit there as a newcomer with your tongue plucking. And then suddenly, about five minutes before quitting time, they change. You know, they grow two or three inches in stature. Their voice drops an octave. And then they say, and then I joined Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> That's my Cadillac parked out in back, son. <laughs> I've been voted Mr. San Fernando Valley Man of the Year. Yeah. And I would always think, you know, how did that happen? How did you go from there to there? Now that, as I say, is in our book, it tells us how it works. And they lay out 12 simple, clear, concise steps. And they tell us that's how it works. Those steps really are so simple, so self-operative, so clear and direct that you could not possibly come, become confused concerning them unless you went to a step study meeting. <laughs> Except that, <laughs> except that conducted by Joe and Charlie. Of course, that's A and beyond, as we call it. Uh, <laughs> but it's true. I mean, when you think about it, the A book was written when it's. Author Bill was sober, I think, less than four years. Now, most of us wouldn't pay any attention to what a four-year-old thinks about much of anything. You know, and everybody else had one year. hundred people sober one year. And they said, these are the steps we took. When did they take them? Assuming they weren't lying, when did they take them? A lot of mendacity around Cleveland in those days, but assuming they weren't lying to us, when did they take them? They had to take them in the first year. That was all the time they had. They didn't know anything about 5, 10, 20, 30, 40 years of sobriety. They didn't know about gurus. You know, uh, people who can hire and fire babies. And You know, Bill, he wrote an article there, if I recall, where he talked about how he went into an eight-year depression two of which were suicidal. And that was on the road of happy destiny. <laughs> How does that grab you, newcomer? <laughs> I've told you all I know about AA. You know, I, I always forget. I very rarely qualify in the sense of 
In fact, the very expression qualifying offends me slightly. I mean, there's a lot of stature has been added to alcoholism in recent years, but it still isn't exactly a way to get ahead. Uh, you know, I mean, if someone stands up and says he has a social disease, I don't ask him to prove it. Uh, if a person tells me an alcoholic, I tend to believe him. Why the hell would he lie about a thing like that? But in addition, I never planned to be an alcoholic. I never walked into a doctor's office and said I... Or I'm in a counselor's office, either in school or in business, and said, I, yes, I think I'd like to major in vomiting, perhaps with a minor in diarrhea. I never planned an evening the way it went. I hear people today who get up and say, I can't blame the things I did while drinking on the flip. And I always think, oh, you poor devil. Jesus, that must be hell. You know, I can. I sure as heck can. I never planned those things. You know where the word intoxicated comes from? It comes from the word toxic. Our nurse will tell you a toxic substance is a poisonous substance. And alcohol, in more than minute quantities, is poisonous. And when you take enough of a poison, you become intoxicated to it, poisoned. And your faculties look out impaired upon the world and see the world as the world is not. Then your mental processes form conclusions based on that misinformed information. <laughs> theologically, and then you act on it. Every evening, you know, the booze would say to me, Don, why don't we? And I'd say, that sounds reasonable. Yeah. <laughs> I never planned an evening the way it went. Maybe you did. I didn't. I never said to myself, well, let's see, what will we do? It's Friday night. I got about a pint here in the house. I think I'll kill that and then go out to get some more and total the car. I've just canceled the insurance in order to save money. And then perhaps on the way to the hospital, the ambulance attendant will roll me, so I'll have no identification. I'll have to spend 24 hours down at General. But on the way home, I'll cuff another jug and terrorize the wife and children all day Sunday. That sounds like a pretty good deal. I'm far too sophisticated to do that, but it happened to me. You know, I, I, I feel I really should tell some damn story of my drinking. I rarely do. I used to, but it, I don't anymore because people, under the guise of telling what they used to be like, give you a drunkalog, not infrequently. And that is not really quite what we're like. That's just what happened to us. Most alcoholics I have ever met are exactly like I was when I was drinking. Kind, loving, gentle, understanding, compassionate, altruistic. Like one of our presidents from your neighboring state who used to say, Come, let us reason together. Let us do it my way. And and they just don't want to do it. And so I, I don't bother, I, but I, I feel I ought to tell I'll give you one example just to show I'm not here under totally false colors. Somebody asked me about it was why I did. I'm going to do it. But this, this is a little... See, most of the time in your early drinking careers, you can blame the things that happen upon other people. It is almost impossible to come into conflict with the outside world unless there's a third party involved who must share some of the blame. See, like 
If he hadn't have made a left turn, I wouldn't have hit him. Which is true, but if I hadn't have been drunk, I might have, like an unguided missile coming down the street, I might have seen he was making that left turn a half a block earlier, you know. Or if he hadn't said what he said about our governor, I wouldn't have a broken nose. Which is true, but if I hadn't been drunk, he might not have made his point so tellingly. But the first time, I think, it came to my attention that it might be just me was... Well, I, I drank largely to relax. And on this particular occasion, I'd been relaxed about four days. <laughs> and I awakened sometime during the night with visions of hellfire and damnation. Imps of Satan were poking at me, and it was Dante's Inferno in 3D. And I lurched up off of the my resting place, sweat drenching down me, and I, I thought, God, there's something wrong with me. I, I, what the hell? What, what, what's this? And I, I looked around, and I realized that I had, uh, my family apparently had retired in their bedrooms sometime earlier, and I had passed, oh, I passed out. I'd, I'd nodded off uh, <laughs> on the couch. And apparently I'd had a cigarette in my hand and had not put, put it out, and as a result, it had fallen onto this kind of plastic, I don't know what they were made of, but that covering over a couch, and it had burned its way through it, because there was a thin spire of smoke coming out of this couch. And I realized then what had happened, and I knew it wasn't my drinking, it was simply I'd been barbecued. <laughs> there being no oxygen, the flame, I mean, the, it couldn't take fire, no oxygen in there, but the coals had gradually spread until I was lying like a luau <laughs> on an absolute bed of flame, and so... You know, on these embers. And once I saw that and knew there was nothing wrong with my drinking, I, I moved to do something about it. And I got a large pitcher of water and came over and tried to pour it in that little hole. <laughs> well, even if I'd have been steadier than I was, that wasn't going to work. All I did was create a rather impressive cascade under the rug. And so I knew more stringent measures were called for, and I went into the kitchen again, and I came back with a large butcher knife, and I slashed the couch from one end to the other, opened it up so I could see the glowing embers, and then I bathed them in the cooling waters, and it, it did, it, it subdued them. The only thing is, it also filled the room with acrid smoke. And I, I can remember to this day, standing there with my eyes wet, uh, from the damn smoke and looking down at this sodden, blackened mass and realizing that almost to a certainty my wife was going to notice it. <laughs> she was a she was a sharp-eyed woman there. There was little that passed her ken, I'll tell you. And seeing it, she was probably apt to forget herself and say something unkind. She was a good woman. She didn't want to assault her husband's manhood. 
say things sometimes in a moment of pique that would later cause her pain. But she would forget herself. You know, she might say something... Just, well, let's say, like, you drunken son of a bitch, you did it again. <laughs> And I wanted to spare her this because I knew she would regret it later. And so I thought, well, what'll I do? And the only thing that occurred to me was I'll just move the damn couch out of here. You know, out of sight, out of mind. She might vaguely remember there'd been something on that side of the room, but... Uh... thing is, it's not as easy to move a bed couch when you should be in a hospital. <laughs> but with that Herculean strength that comes only to the panic-stricken alcoholic, I somehow managed to get it onto my shoulder and head it out the front door. We lived in the second floor <laughs> and a very small little balcony there. I, I, there were pillars on it. I damn near beat myself to death. Carom shots, you know, bang, 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 bang. I get down into the patio, and foresight is not your strong point at there. I, it had not dawned on me. There's very few places you can place a couch in an apartment patio. I couldn't think of where to set it down. So I'm standing there with legs quivering. You know, I should be in a sanitarium. I'm holding a couch. Uh, I finally remembered a creek about five miles away. And so I, I stumbled forward to my car and threw the couch on top of it and got in and started driving to this <laughs> creek. Well, by this time, it was probably 6, 6.30, 7, I don't know, with daylight anyhow, there were people at the bus stops, you know, with, with briefcases and lunch pails, and I have no idea how they can stay up that late, really, but there was... And as I drove down the street, I noticed their heads turning <laughs> as I came by. <laughs> Mouths agape. Now, all I ever wanted was dignity. <laughs> and I thought, God, it doesn't take much to draw a crowd in California. I'll stand up. until I chanced to pass a dusty window on an auto showcase that acted as a mirror. And I got a picture of what they were looking at. Here was a fellow, dignified, clad in a bathrobe, four or five day growth of beard, driving along, and on top of this car is a couch which previously had lacked enough oxygen to take flame, but now driving 30 miles an hour, the flames were going through it like a billows. So only 40 feet in the air, straight up.
And when I got home, I really found it hard to blame that on my sleeping wife and children whose lives I had imperiled. And not in those days were social drinking. That was just the beginning of it. It got bad. <laughs> and nobody, just to be briefly sure, it does get bad. You know, alcoholism is a goddamn, I mean, it's a game you can't win, you can't break even, you can't get out of. <laughs> I wasn't even getting into much trouble at the end of my drinking because I wasn't getting out. I mean, how much trouble can you get into in a hotel room with a bottle of wine and a copy of Playboy? <laughs> The maid doesn't step on you. You're reasonably safe. <laughs> but you're dying. Absolutely dying. Just dying. God, I saw a show on our PBS station there, one of those nature series about a wolf he, out in the wilderness and got his paw caught in one of those traps, and he was tugging at it, and the blood was running down. And then he finally tried to chew it off, and I identified with him. I mean, that's what it's like out there, boy. And I got under this program and uh, felt like that old spiritual that free at last, free at last, great God Almighty is free at last. And it, you know, and the strange thing is that we think of it as going to be somehow a, a dull, gloomy type existence, and it's just exactly the reverse. I mean, for the first time in our lives, most of us were able to do and participate in this business of living. And it's so exciting. My God, it's exciting. There's an infinite variety of experiences, sensual, intellectual, emotional out there. It's like some god set forth a feast before us and said, take what you want and then pay for it. <laughs> and sober, you're going to find out if you like it. Really well. I was speaking one time at a Narcotic Rehabilitation Center not too far from Los Angeles, and it's always hard speaking in an institution. I've been on both sides of that invisible curtain. Uh, you, you can't hear through it. You know, it isn't that the speaker isn't broadcasting a strong message, but the receiving set is so filled with the static of that resentment and self-pity. I know I listened to my first speaker under those circumstances. I didn't hear a thing he said because it was so obvious that there was an injustice going on here. Here was this rotten guy telling these evil things about himself, and after the meeting was over, he was going to go home. <laughs> I was going back to the ward. And But so I got a chance, finally, to get on the other side, and I remember speaking at that narcotic rehabilitation center a number of years ago. And for some reason, it just tore me up that night to see all these young guys in there in the prime of their lives, caged like animals. And when they got out, they were going to have their chin on their chest again. We only get one trip on this little blue-white globe we call the Earth, so far as I know, as far as anybody knows. And really, it's a shame to miss it. It's a shame to miss it. And I, I felt so, so sad for them. I, you know, I encouraged them, for God's sakes, get out there when you get out and live without chemical courage, live. You know, and when I was done, there was that one clapping back to the cell. You, know, you don't really reach them. And I, 
I wrote home thinking, oh, Christ, I have no message. I can't talk to anybody. I don't know why I tried. But a week later, I read in the newspaper that they had rioted and invaded the women's dormitory. <laughs> and I thought, power, power. I took, I took personal credit for it. <laughs> the next time I think I spoke out there, I spoke on patience. The truth will set you free, ultimately, not immediately. <laughs> but it, it, there's no way you can short-circuit anybody's r- inalienable right to suffer. I, you know, I, I, <laughs> you, we wish sometimes we could take somebody by the hand and lead them out of the horror and the wilderness of drinking, but if we could, the next guy with a jug would lead them right back in again. So basically, we crawl out on our own. And through those steps that I... You know, everybody in... <laughs> I don't know. Someday I'm going to become serious, I guess, but I've seen no evidence that is necessary yet. Uh, <laughs> but I, I was thinking of the people. Each one has spoken almost has given you their version of the steps. And I, too, of course, said that I think they are what makes this program go. And yet at the same time, they are without question the most insipid, the most intellectually stultifying and insulting set of commandments I have ever run across in my life those 12 steps, when I finally heard them for the first time, I, I grasped that that was what we were supposed to do. I was shocked. I have read many disciplines, many various ways to cure alcoholism. Every one of them is more logical, more consistent, more appealing than AA. About the only thing AA has go- going for it that they don't is that it works. <laughs> But it really does not appeal in that sense. It doesn't appeal to your good judgment. The first step, for example, talks about being powerless. It doesn't say you admit you're an alcoholic. Hell, I admitted that ten years before I quit. That explained why I drank the way I did. I just adjusted my life. I'd come out of a courtroom and somebody would say, gee, we had a tough session. Why don't we go have a couple of beers, Don? And I'd look at my watch and say, well, I can't. Uh, today's Tuesday. I have to be back in court on Thursday. Yeah. Uh, I knew how long it took to get on one, how long it took to get off. Now, if you can do that, you're alcoholic, but you are not, your life is not yet unmanageable because you're not yet powerless over it. If you can predict when you're going to start and when you're going to stop, alcoholic you may be, but you're not ready for the first step, which doesn't say anything about being an alcoholic. It says you admit you are powerless. That is a dreadful admission. Few people would like to admit powerless. That's like some leaf, you know, that has no will of its own, caught by a passing wind and twisted and turned and deposited without any choice in the matter. I, that's a terrible admission. Second and third steps were even worse. They talked about turning your will, your life, over to a power that you knew didn't exist. <laughs> that's like asking you to step off into a void to be supported by something that isn't there. These are not intellectual exercises, I'll tell you. And the fourth step says that you take pencil and paper and sit down and write a list of your wrongs, your felonies, your acts of disloyalty, your breaches of trust. As an attorney, I give a great deal of thought before I put anything down in writing. (laughs) And that's the first thing they tell you in law school, never do nor allow a client to do. 
That isn't the way to avoid trouble. That's the way to ensure it. Or even if you would concede that by writing about your life, you would then perhaps begin to see patterns develop that you could benefit from. Surely you would take those shameful and shabby sheets and burn them, would you not, and stomp the ashes into the dust, lest human eye light upon them? Hell no, eh? He says you immediately go to some blabbermouth, tell them all about it, <laughs> lay yourself open to a lifetime of certain blackmail. That really doesn't appeal. I'm not going to trouble you with all, but they're all like that, really. I told you how we are when we get here, kind and loving. And now, and they have mistreated us so badly. And now we are supposed to make amends to them? The eighth and ninth step says we're supposed to make amends to them after all they've done to us? Smitten us the ninety and nine blows, and maybe we retaliated with a backhanded slap once. (laughs) And now we make amends to them? Rank injustice. And when I first got here, I couldn't even think of a person to make an amend to. It troubled me. I thought, you're not perfect, are you? Uh, you know, it, it seemed improbable, and yet all the evidence pointed in that direction. <laughs> Carlin here, uh, the voice of the convention, or Gideon's trumpet, as we sometimes say, (laughs) she said she hadn't given up smoking because she didn't want to become perfect. I've quit smoking. Uh, Perfection is difficult, but I find it's worthwhile. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) The other people get up... (laughs) Other people get up here and say the things they say are only their own opinion. But that's not the case with me. I turned my will and my life over, so what I tell you is the word of God. Now, you better listen up. (laughs) The only thing is he keeps changing his message to me all the time. God is such a wondrous scapegoat, really. You know, it's so nice to be without fault. You know, I haven't, it's true, I haven't made a single mistake, the slightest fault, paw, even a deviation from the way of valor in a couple of decades. On the other hand, God has seen fit to do some of the stupidest, most petty, vicious, lurid things through me that you can imagine. But if it gives him pleasure to make me look like a horse's ass, (laughs) who are you to criticize? Yeah, really, when I got here, I couldn't think of anybody to make an amend to. I remember I, I wrote a letter to a guy. It went something like, I thought of this one guy, one guy. I wrote a letter said, Dear Sir, I've joined an organization which is part of its fellowship and discipline, requires that in any way I've hurt or offended another human being, I should promptly apologize. I therefore wish to say I'm sorry that I shot you. <laughs> if I can be of further service to you in the future, however, please do not hesitate to call upon me. <laughs> Very truly yours. I've been down there 28 years ago. <laughs> the guy hasn't even answered. 
Resentment is a terrible thing for those non-alcoholics. <laughs> Since then, I hasten to add, I have thought of others to make amends to. Everybody I ever met. <laughs> Everybody I ever came You know, we, we, we're, we're, we're something out there. There's no question about it. I mean, you fool with an alcoholic. It's like fondling a toad. The best you can hope for is warts. I mean, <laughs> Jesus, God. I remember speaking to a group of non-alcoholics once, and in the question and answer period, one of them raised her pretty hand and said, what can we as non-alcoholics do to help the alcoholic who still suffers? You know, and without being unduly cynical about the best I could come up with was protect yourself at all times. Explain that if, if he ever sobers up, he's going to have to make amends, so don't let him get in too deep if you can avoid it. <laughs> but you can't knock a good mark. They're still out there. Uh, and then if you go all through those steps, you arrive at step 12, which as I read it, said that I would then be entitled to get up at 3 in the morning to call on somebody who's going to puke on my shoes. a soft cell. <laughs> the more I drank, the more I despised drunkenness in others, and the weaker and more powerless I became, the more I despised weakness and powerlessness in others, and they tell me now I'm going to dedicate my life to doing that. Uh, I mean, that really does not appeal. I even glanced further in the book. I thought there must be something more enticing than that. I got into that vision for you. Usually visions have something going for them. And there they say, if you will do those things, which they rather quaintly call putting your house in order, they say, surely you, you know, that if you do will do them, you will meet with some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. I read that again. Trudge. <laughs> trudge. <laughs> Think of all the most limitless number of verbs that are used to describe locomotion in the English language, and they pick trudge. I didn't want traipsy, waltz, skip, come aloo. But surely you could stride with dignity. You could walk head upright, trudge. And what does that conjure up, for God's sakes? That's straight out of Rudyard Kipling. Boots, boots, marching up and down again. Foot slogging over Africa. There's no end to the war. I was younger, occasionally some young thing would come up to me and say, you come with me, fella, I'm a swinger, I'm a goer. I everybody come in. You come with me, I'm a trudger. We'll hit her down. <laughs> but there's a cure for those intellectual objections, and that's to continue drinking. <laughs> 
And booze is a great proselytizer in the message carrier. It's not the speakers nor our books or anything else. It's booze that instills that state of sweet reasonableness known only to the dying that uh, seems to be a prerequisite to the first step. Literally, it's booze. That's what wears off the point on the intellectual's head. <laughs> Through friction against the gutter, if need be. And you take them and they work. But you won't take them. Hell, by the time I was in my terminal stages of drinking, I was lying there on the floor, and I thought, God, if I tried the steps, I could trudge. Woo, go, go, man, go. Yeah. That, looks, that sounds pretty fast when you're in a mobile. But as I've indicated, it is nothing like that. You sober up, and for the first time in your life, you're free, and you begin to live. And I, God, I want to, you know, I want to taste every single day. I don't know if my program has improved all that much, and maybe I'm simply getting older. There aren't that many days on this one little trip we get left. How many days, you know, what do they authorize us? Three score and ten, 70 years, roughly. Multiply 70 by 365. You come out, what, 25,000 plus? That's not an awful lot of time. If you had $25,000 to last you the rest of your life, I doubt you'd fold it up and throw it down the toilet by the handful. And yet I used to take those priceless and irreplaceable days by the week, by the month, by the year, and throw them away, sodden drunk, caged up, in a hospital, building resentment for the next one. Oh, I hate that now to think back. I still do it sometimes. Still get mad. Blow a whole day. I just hate that. You know, and yet that's the worst. You know, if there are any newcomers who are... What is the worst thing that could happen if you really tried to program, really took the steps and tried to... What is the worst thing that could happen? You'd spend the rest of your life in full possession of your faculties. <laughs> I know that's a threat, but it is. You won't be able to be hip and slick and cool anymore. You won't be able to say, hey, what's happening? I mean, shit, you'll know. <laughs> exciting because I've wanted to live that life to the utmost, even those painful days. And there will be moments in AA so exquisitely painful you can't imagine them if you're new. Because you'll stand there in a, surrounded by a wall of pain in which there's neither door nor seam, and you can't escape anymore through changing the subject by getting drunk or relieving the tension by blowing out your safety valve of drunkenness. You just stand there and hurt. That's usually where spiritual experiences come in, when you can't stand it any longer and there's no relief. But the, most of the time, it's not like that. Most of the time, it is so wondrously exciting to take it impersonally. Nobody has ever wants to hurt you or me. When I come in conflict with people, it's not because they're out to get me. I just happen to be in their way. <laughs> and if I step back and say, go ahead, we don't have any conflict. God's will for me has been the path of least resistance. And I've done the wildest and crazy. Everything I ever fantasized about doing... And I have some strange fantasies, even to this day. At two or three in the morning, you know, the delirium is a disease of the night. And I can come up with some strange things. And I've tried them all, cold sober. If AA was a program that prevented you from doing and experiencing and being, we would have to get drunk in order to exist. It doesn't. It allows you to do anything you want. And I've done weird things. Because I want to taste them. I, I, a guy called me, he said, 
It's been over a few years. He said, Don, you seem to have a more bullion enthusiastic program than I do. How's it better than mine? I said, I doubt it is. Maybe my life is just different. I, I do more things, maybe. I said, have you learned to fly an airplane yet? He said, no. I said, I did. Went out to an old anachronistic flight school out near where I lived. Three hours. Three hours, and I soloed. You know, hell, we didn't have instruments. Now, nothing on there. Three hours, I soloed. I took the plane up to San Francisco that weekend. I knew about navigation. I flew over Highway 101. <laughs> flew over and under the Golden Gate Bridge. I didn't know you weren't supposed to do that. <laughs> have you tried scuba diving? No. I said, hell, I was scuba. First time I ever put on the gear. First time. I know you're supposed to take lessons and so on. But I'm one of those, hum a couple of bars, I'll pick it up. You know, <laughs> first time I ever had it on was out off Catalina Island. I put the stuff on, jumped in the water. I went down 40, 50 feet, swimming around. Beautiful, absolutely beautiful down there. It ran out of air. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> I put my higher power to the test. <laughs> I took my first free-fall parachute jump just before I became a grandfather. I got through male menopause racing motorcycles with Steve McQueen out in the desert. <laughs> the only copy of the big book they used to see out around Barstow. <laughs> No, I, I've tried it. This, this is what the A's about. It's about living. Now, a lot of it I wouldn't repeat. A lot of it I wouldn't do again. And it's true. You can do it in that position, but it damn near throws your back out. You know, I'm really going to have to learn now that I am <laughs> now that I'm an honorable uh, to say that not, I say the most awful things sometimes, but there's a purpose behind it occasionally. But <laughs> see, in AA, everything about AA is contrary to the way the outside world looks at things. Everything we are told is almost a direct opposite of what we are told in those books about how to get ahead, how to succeed. You know, they tell us things like, put your best foot forward. Now, when you think about that, that implies you have another one back there. <laughs> a corn-ridden, gnarled old one, see. And after you get in and get an advantage on them, then you whip her out and let them look at it, see. <laughs> A says you show them both right off the top. <laughs> Everything in AA is contrary to the way other people think. It is true. I, I remember my first time. The first time I began to realize that the philosophy of AA was reaching me many years ago. I was at a meeting and a guy got up and he talked about how that day, he'd only been sober a short while, as said I, but he, he said on that day the FBI had been by to see him. And it was kind of a frightening experience. But after he talked to the agent for a little bit, he found it wasn't something in his past that he had forgotten. It was that somebody had stolen a car and taken it across state lines and when the authorities found it, in it was an AA meeting list with his name and phone number on it. And so he deduced what had happened. He had given some newcomer a meeting list, signed his name, said, if you have any trouble, call me, gave it to him, and the guy went off. And this guy was in it talking about it, and he said, in dead seriousness, he said, I don't know who that newcomer was, but he's going to have to stop stealing those cars or he's going to get into trouble. He'll start drinking. <laughs> and I found myself agreeing, nodding, sitting there. <laughs> 
and later I thought about I thought, isn't that absurd? How would you ever describe to a non-alcoholic the logic of a statement, that man has to stop committing felonies or he's going to get into trouble, he'll drink. <laughs> the, the reason that came home to me was the other day, I'm sitting there hearing an argument and appeal from what they call it, Chinatown Massacre, the gang war up in San Francisco, and they killed a bunch of people. And they're arguing this case to me. My panel is three or four of us in our robes up there. They're looking very serious. And, <laughs> and this guy is telling us how we should not be too hard on his client who didn't tell the exact truth when he was arrested. And I heard myself, you know, out comes the damn words. I heard myself saying to him, don't worry about it, Consular. That's one of the troubles with murder is that it leads to lying. <laughs> been a beautiful life. It's been a beautiful existence. It's been said here a couple of times that if we were to make a list of what our greatest expectations would be when we're new, we would short-circuit ourselves. Everything that has ever happened to me good was preceded by a period of pain that I resisted. I mentioned here I remarried in my age about four years ago with a young lady. got 16 years sobriety. I don't monkey with newcomers, but... Uh, <laughs> She's still startlingly young, and, and yet she seems to like me. Doesn't even object to the feeling of old age creeping on her at night. And... back to school and passed the bar. I swore her in as an attorney just recently. And uh, How can things like that happen to her? My own job that was mentioned here earlier, probably one of the lowest points in my life was about 25 years ago I wanted to get a job. I went into a large law firm there in Los Angeles and I'd been around AA long enough to learn that you can tell these stories that would tear tears from the heart of a stone and in AA they get laughter. And I didn't realize at that time you can't tell non-alcoholics those stories. <laughs> and not knowing that, I wanted to make a good impression, so I told them about the time I was in four-point restraint uh, and vomited straight up. <laughs> and, uh... <laughs> about the time I got drunk and threw my mother-in-law down the steps and <laughs> being intoxicated, fell after her and got a hernia. And... <laughs> He didn't, he didn't giggle a gig. Uh, he just got shocked. And I get, thought, well, I guess I'm being too subtle for him. So I continued to hit him with these one-liners for a while. And finally, it was obvious I was not getting through. And I, I said, look, I'm not asking you to recommend me to your... He said, recommend you? Recommend you? I would not offer your name for consideration. No attorney in the history of this nation has ever done the things that you have done or had happened to him the things that have happened to you. I suggest you go out into the countryside and forget the law. <laughs> he said, when members of this law firm walk into a courtroom, they know that what they represent 
integrity, responsibility, steadfastness, honor, send you? Oh, boy, I'll tell you. I wasn't prepared for that by my sobriety. I, I, I never, I really crushed. I wanted to slither like a serpent out of the room. I wanted to hasten to the nearest bar and drown myself in that bottomless bottle every time I, as I had in the past. And I thought, no, by God, if I do it, he'll be right. He'll be absolutely right. And I wasn't going to give him the satisfaction when I went out to the old 6300 Club and drank coffee at him instead. <laughs> About ten years later, that guy, cold sober, flipped out. Took the company's check protector and his secretary and went to Europe and disgraced himself, his family, everybody. <laughs> and a few years ago, the governor of our state called me and told me he was appointing me to the appellate bench. You know what happens now when members of that law firm are in a courtroom and I walk in? They stand up. <laughs> and they don't sit down till I tell them to. <laughs> All power to the powerlessness. <laughs> And that is a, that's a miracle. There is no way that that can happen. If you were to put a story like mine on the soap operas, they'd laugh you off the air. Okay, how can you go from lockups and craziness to sitting on the highest court? It can't happen. It's impossible. And yet in A, it's almost a typical story. Not that particular one. But they're in there. For every one of us, they're in there. Really, if anybody has the desire to stick around and see what happens in the last of this trip, I would really recommend this program because there's a miracle waiting for each one of us, and I would hate to see you miss yours. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.